morning. My name is Joshua. I'm one of the elders here at the church. Pastor Ben is away this weekend. Every six or seven weeks, he likes to uh, take a week out of the pulpit and focus on some of the other work involved with being a senior minister. And uh, that suits Jeff and me just fine because it gives us the chance to sharpen our preaching skills and uh, go through all the uh, benefits and challenges of delivering and preparing a sermon. This will be my 26th sermon, and there are some of you in the room that will remember unwillingly, perhaps, some of my first sermons here in 2009 and 2010. We were in between senior ministers at that point. We had a lot of variety in the pulpits during that season, and I had the privilege of growing very quickly because I needed to grow very quickly, and thank you all for being patient with me during that season. We did several books, several messages from the book of James back then, uh, but we didn't finish the book. We ran out of time before the next minister arrived, and so when Ben said that we would be uh, after Mark and after Psalms going into the book of James, I was quite pleased to hear that. Hopefully you will enjoy it this morning and be enriched by it over the next uh, hour and a half or so, or however long it takes us to get through the text. I shouldn't joke. There's visitors in the room. It won't take an hour and a half. It'll be 39 minutes, and then we'll be on our way. So... Let's go, to, uh, let's go to prayer before we turn to God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this chance to uh, come before you and to hear from your word. Thank you uh, for your word. pray that we would not sit in judgment of the text this morning, but we would let it sit in judgment of us. And I pray that um, we would not become too self-focused as this text or this message rather might tempt us to do, but uh, rather than seeing this as just something that is to us and about us and for us, that uh, by hearing it and responding to it, we will make it something that is to you and for you and about you. Thank you for uh, Jesus Christ and all that he's done on our behalf, in whose name we pray. Amen. We started the series two weeks ago in chapter one, looking at how God uses trials and challenges and temptations to help us grow in him, to lean on him, to trust him, and to get wisdom from him, to turn away from everything that would deceive us. That first section ended in verse 18 of chapter 1 of James. If you do not have a Bible, there are many of them scattered around the room under the seat in front of you. Verse 18 of chapter 1, speaking of God, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James then pushes that idea forward. If God has brought us forth and made us alive, what kind of life should that be? How does it affect the life that I'm already living, the person that I already am? And the person that I ought to become. What if there is no change, no fruit, no life to be found? Has the word of truth truly taken root in me? Has God truly done a work in me if there's no evidence of it whatsoever except my own say-so? That is what encompasses the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Last week, Ben showed us that the gospel changes us from the inside out. It's not external behavior modification. It's internal character transformation. We start to become quicker to hear, slower to speak, slower to get angry. We learn to control our tongue. We develop a care and concern for the defenseless and the impoverished. We grow in a desire for holy living, for living a life that pleases God and keeping ourselves unstained from sinfulness. God's law is no longer an opposing standard that is against us to condemn us, but instead it is now the perfect law, the mirror the law of liberty that shows us how, by God's grace and with his help, we can become more like Christ. And if that isn't happening, if I'm not growing in Christ, then my faith isn't a faith that can save me because I'm revealing that I do not have life. 
Right in the middle of all that, we have 2, 1 to 13. James make an application specifically into the churches that he is writing to. He's going to take one particular area of sin, hold it up, show how it is so sinful and damning, and then take us straight back to the cross of Jesus Christ. So we're going to read through the text, uh, starting in verse 126, get a running start, and we will just have a little bit of textual amplification along the way. So 126 going through 213. If anyone thinks he is religious, that he has a relationship with God, faith in Christ, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality, favoritism, respect of appearances, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, fine clothing is a weak, weak translation. It means resplendent, magnificent, shimmering apparel, like Liberace, only even more classy. If gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, your worship service, and a poor, destitute man in shabby, filthy clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention, pay special regards to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions, judgments, discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Here's the key verse in the section, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Poor in the world, but rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored, insulted, despised, degraded, humiliated the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme, slander the honorable name by which you were called? Now, if you were on the receiving end of this, what would your response be? We are not doing any such thing. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If you're really actually obeying this, good for you. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Okay, well, maybe we're doing that a little bit, but it's just not that big a deal. We'll see. Verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Okay, well, maybe we're doing that, and maybe it is a big deal, but who made you the judge over us? Well, James is not going to be the final judge. So speak and so act in this way, in this manner, speak and act as as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, James has an obvious and specific concern here. Don't show favoritism. But he's not forgetting the big picture. If your faith hasn't changed you, how you behave, then your faith is useless and will not save you. Here's our plan for this morning. We're going to look at how favoritism was shown in the time of James. 
And then we're going to look at how favoritism is shown in our day, in our lives, in our church. And then we're going to hear from James on why favoritism is a problem in the first place. What is the big deal here? Verses 1 through 4, partiality is wrong because of our relationship with God. Verses 5 through 7, partiality is wrong because of our relationships inside the church. And verses 8 through 13, partiality is wrong because of our relationship with the law. Now, the favoritism that is on display here in James, what was its basis and how did they show it? The basis was purely economic. Apparently, in the ancient world, um, there were only two levels in society. And we talk today about the haves and the have-nots, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. But in their case, it was extreme. You were either very wealthy and very well-connected and completely self-sufficient, or you were barely making ends meet, if that. And most people, the vast majority of people, were poor, some of them even existing in a form of slavery. Now, the basis of their discrimination was wealth. Now, how did the church show favor to the rich and slight the poor? Apparently, in their context, it was all about seating. Some seats in the room were better than others. Higher, lower, closer to the front, closer to the back, away from the ceiling fans, facing Jerusalem, whatever it was, seating was their currency of status. And I'm sure that sounds pretty strange to you. How is it that people in church could go get so worked up about seating. Why should I get bent out of shape if somebody sits in my seat? Why should I make a big deal if my chair gets moved? Why would it bother me if some weeks so many people come that I don't get to have an empty seat next to me for my drink and my elbow, but instead some other person has to sit next to me in my space close to me? Now, the problem isn't the way that they were showing favoritism. The problem is that they were doing it, and they were doing it for all the wrong reasons. Judging, all judging, not just partiality like this, but all judging involves three steps. You look at the evidence, and then you draw a conclusion, and then you um, take an action. Consider the evidence, draw a conclusion, take an action. And often we're doing this unconsciously. Snap judgments, first impressions, or another word, prejudice, pre-judging, before you even know somebody's name or their character, already determining their worth, sometimes without even thinking about it. These people in James 2, they had made judgments made a judgment, made a decision, taking a course of action based on the evidence that they had considered. But the only thing that they had considered was one thing, the appearance of wealth. And based on that, they made a conclusion. Rich person, welcome. Poor person, not welcome. And based on that conclusion, they took action. Rich person, take a good seat. Poor person, take a hike. Now, they got it all wrong. They showed partiality, didn't take time to get to know the person. Maybe the appearances were deceiving. Even if they weren't deceiving, maybe wealth isn't a good standard on which to make judgments. And even if it is, maybe they're doing the wrong thing by discriminating against the poor and favoring the rich. If they were judging on the basis of wealth, how do we make judgments? If James is telling us not to do something, it would be good to know in what ways we're tempted to do that. When somebody new comes walking into our church, walking into our workplace or school or neighborhood, in what ways might we make wrong judgments? Now, this text is about not judging on the basis of appearances. And before we go through that, it is important to note that there are times when we must judge, when decisions must be made and actions must be taken. On, uh, I got two examples, one of them more serious than the other. On Monday morning, we all woke up and decided that we had the need as a people to rise up as one and say, oh my gosh, 
Miley Cyrus, put your clothes on and stop doing that thing with that foam finger because you're embarrassing yourself. Can we please just pretend that never happened? The day before, Sunday morning, we all woke up and we saw that Syria had used chemical weapons on their own people. And we can't just pretend that didn't happen. Uh, Something must be done. Pray for our leaders. The first draft of this sermon had 1,700 words, almost half a sermon, on how to make right judgments. Because Jesus says, don't judge based on appearances. John 7, make right judgments. And there is a lot of stuff on that topic, how to make good decisions and judgments in society, in the church, in our lives. But James, in our text, that Ben assigns to me, confines his focus to judging on appearances, first impressions. So we're going to stick to that. The situations where we must never judge are easy to identify, usually, but unfortunately, difficult to obey. We must never judge somebody on something, an area where they have no control. If it's outside of their responsibility, we can't hold them accountable for it. Gender. Guys and gals are not the same. They're not always as different as we treat them. Extended family relationships. Please don't make any decisions about what you think about my sister just because you know me. It's not her fault that I'm her brother. This week on Facebook, there's one of those things rolling around talking about how brown-eyed people are warm and inviting and transparent and honest, obviously implying that us blue-eyed folks are grumpy, stone-cold liars. Or maybe it was just an exercise in light-hearted prejudice. A couple more serious ones. Being a victim of a natural disaster, certain kinds of crime, certain types of diseases. Uh, There is a sinful impulse in us that uh, wants to blame the victim because if somebody is a victim of a tragedy that is completely beyond their control, then if it happened to them, it could happen to us. And we don't like that. So we try to find reasons why they brought it on themselves. There's one last one we're going to come back to. Individual peculiar temptations. We'll come back to that one, what I mean there, in a moment. Those are all examples of judging based on appearances, and the Bible forbids it. Which does not mean, another point of clarification, that common courtesy is uh, being forbidden by James. We're not going to paint over the handicapped spots in the parking lot because we're not allowed to show favoritism. Right? Okay, James is not advocating against decency. Pregnant people, new mothers handicapped, elderly, service members, all of them are due a heightened level of courtesy, and that is not what James has a problem with. But I do want to examine two in particular that I think James would have a problem with since they are especially timely and relevant for the culture in which God has placed us. When we use words like partiality and discrimination and prejudice, there is exactly one issue that comes to mind because it has been one great singular blemish on our people, on our nation from day one, and that is racial prejudice and discrimination. I'd like to think that it would go without saying that racial discrimination is completely abhorrent to God. I'd like to think that we can all agree that such sinful behavior has no place among God's people. And I'd like to think that in Hamilton County in 2013, that that is just a non-issue. But it's not the sort of thing that can go without saying, and it's not the sort of thing that we can just assume is under control. And when I have the opportunity to quote from Reverend King, I will take it. This was 50 years ago last Thursday. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all 
God's children. This sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until there is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. I'd like to think that if that generation could see the fruit of what started to grow in 1963, they'd be pleased. But we all know that by the standards of James 2, there is huge room for improvement, not just in state racism or police brutality, but in the matters of the heart. Having prejudice, making judgments based on appearances, decisive first impressions based on skin color or ethnicity, whether that's white or black or Middle Eastern or Latino or Native American or Asian, whatever it is. The church should be at least as diverse as the surrounding community, if not more so, because when we get to heaven, race and skin color and ethnicity are not going to be one of those things that are gone and forgotten. Instead, it's going to be yet one more reason that we can praise God, because he has gathered to himself a people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and every people. We talk about um, that the church should be an increasingly and vivid and colorful portrait of what it will be like on that day. And we know what we mean when we talk about having a colorblind society and how that would be a good thing, but there's a real sense in which heaven will not be a colorblind society. Because when we get there and all God's people are gathered in, we're going to look around and say, look at all the colors. They're all here. Every single one of them represented it. God had people from every single group, every color. So no racial profiling in the church. No judging based on appearances in that regard. Now, if I haven't made you uncomfortable yet by talking about race or talking about the chairs, then um, this next little bit should probably do the trick. I said a moment ago that uh, individual peculiar temptation is another illegitimate basis on which to judge somebody. And here's what I mean by that. We're all tempted in various ways by various sins, of course. But each one of us has sins that are uniquely compelling. Lifelong besetting sins where victory can come and be hard won and remains for a season, but you always know that the next wave of temptation is always just over the horizon. Some of these are completely self-inflicted, and others of these are completely predetermined. There are ways that I am uniquely tempted to sin simply because I am my father's son. Grew up in his house, and before I knew up from down or right from left, it was practically foreordained that I would have certain vulnerabilities. It doesn't mean that I am doomed to repeat generational failures, and none of us are doomed to perpetuate the cycle of of generational sin, because in a very real way, God is our Father now. And he never lets us be tempted beyond what we can bear, and always provides a way of enduring under those temptations and the grace to rise again after stumbling. But we have a way of judging people based on their temptation rather than their sin. And that's something that we ought not do. If it's, it's not a sin to be tempted to steal. Stealing is the sin. It's not a sin to be tempted by food and drink, but gluttony and drunkenness are the sins. It's not a sin to be tempted to eat the last brownie, Aaron's brownie. But apparently it is a sin to take it and eat it, even though it was just sitting there all by itself, alone, next to a tall, cold glass of milk. Don't judge me because I was tempted. Judge me because I took it. And I ate it, and it was so delicious. 
Now, none of that is controversial, maybe, except for one person. Uh, but this, this was a month ago when Pope Francis gave this quote in an off-the-cuff interview. If someone is gay and he searches for the Lord and has goodwill, who am I to judge? Get lost in all the headlines was that he was talking about priests who have taken a vow of purity and were genuinely seeking to honor their vow and live a holy and chaste life. As Christians, we need to remember we cannot judge people based on their temptations. It is actions and choices for which we are to be held accountable. There is all the difference in the world and in eternity between the person who struggles with same-sex attraction and resists temptation and strives to live a pure and holy life in their walk with Christ. And on the other hand, the person who does not struggle but gives themselves over to their desires and appetites, whether that be food or sex or pride or greed or laziness or whatever that might be. The church, this church, should be a warm and welcoming place for everybody who is resisting their sin in their walk with Christ, whatever that temptation is. And this church, the church, Prairie View, should be a very uncomfortable place for people who are comfortable with their sin. Now, those examples are applicable to all the areas of your life. But James is talking about partiality in the church. How do we show partiality here at 141st and Allisonville? It's not purely on the basis of money. We are tempted to value what the culture values, and yes, the culture values wealth. But even uh, alongside, even more than that, would be youth, beauty, comfort, and security. That is what is valued in our culture, youth, beauty, comfort, and security. So take James's situation and modernize it, update it. A nice-looking family comes in. Two parents, kids, clean, well-behaved, not too many of them, nice car in the parking lot, and they are even looking like they are healthy and presentable and well put together. Smiles on their faces, easily interacting with people in the lobby. These are the people that we are drawn to. These are our kind of people. Get them in, get them a bulletin, point them towards the coffee and the donuts in Kid City, introduce them to your spouse, and tell them that when the service is over, if they have any questions, come and talk to me. All good things. All good things when done for the right reasons. Flip that around and uh, consider the, the opposite. Guy comes in, alone, scruffy, shabby clothes, smells funny, unshaven, unwashed, significantly out of shape, driving a clunker, scowl on his face, and a bit of a hint that he will tell you a long, sad story if given the slightest opportunity. Now, we're Midwesterners. We're polite, but we're not too polite. You tell him he's welcome, and you hope that he talks to somebody else after the service, if anybody. Now, what is so wrong with this picture? If you're cynical, you can make the argument that you're simply devoting your limited resources to the opportunity that has the most potential for the highest reward for the church. Nice, happy family can get plugged into volunteer service and start tithing the sooner the better, where grumpy vagrant is going to cost you effort, energy, time, resources, maybe a little bit of extra attention from the security team. Why wouldn't you pay more attention to the nice, happy family? James tells us, going back to the text now, verse 1 has the big headline, show no partiality. That's obvious, but hidden in plain sight is one of the key points about why partiality is a problem. James could have just said, show no partiality, or even show no partiality as you hold the faith in Jesus. That would have worked, would have gotten his point across, but that's not all that he gives us. We get, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus 
Christ, the Lord of glory. Okay, that's not just filler, stuffing, Christian marshmallow fluff that we use to dress up our speech that doesn't actually mean anything. Okay, when James or Paul or anybody says something about Jesus, it was probably written that way on purpose. James did not need to distinguish which Jesus he was talking about. It was not, you know, oh, James, James, I know Jesus of Nazareth and I know Jesus from Kokomo. Which Jesus are you talking about? Because you've got to set me clear because this could be confusing. Oh, you mean Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now I know who you're talking about. Okay, that was not necessary. When James refers to Jesus, his own brother Jesus, he calls him the Lord, the Christ, the Lord of glory. Why does he do that? First, it's a reminder that God is God and we are not. He is the creator and we are the creatures. He is high and lofty and lifted up and majestic and dwells in unapproachable light. He is a different nature of being than we are. He is holy. And when we consider the vast gulf that exists between his nature of being, the one true living eternal God, and us, the humans, then it is preposterous for one of us to say to another, I'm better than you. I'm more important than you. I have more value than you. That's just silly. But we forget God. We go based on appearances, and that's what gets us into trouble. You are God in heaven, and here am I on earth. So I'll let my words be few. Good advice. Good advice. Maybe I should have taken it this week when writing the sermon. Now, there's two sides to this coin. Not only is God high and humans low, but there's also the little fact that humans alone, out of all the creatures in all creation, are made in the image of God. And it is equally ridiculous to say to somebody made in God's image, you are of lesser value than me. You are lower priority than me. I'm a big deal, and you are not. You're talking about somebody made in the image of the Lord of glory, and it is offensive to the one whose image is being insulted. So first, favoritism says something wrong about our relationship with God. James then transitions into a slightly more pragmatic approach. Now, the whole point of the Bible is that the high, lofty, majestic, holy God draws near to us and gathers a people to himself. Jesus was born as one of us. He died as one of us. And rising again, he established his church. And the Lord of glory is quite capable of providing for his people. Whatever they thought they were going to gain by sucking up to the rich people, the Lord of glory can give them all that and more. Whether it's material gain or status or protection in society, the Lord of glory has it covered. Whatever they thought they were putting at risk by associating with poor people, the Lord of glory can protect them from that. Whether it's shame or embarrassment or inconvenience or the drain on the resources, it's nothing, nothing when the Lord of glory is yours. There is a very practical problem in addition to that in showing favoritism it doesn't work it wasn't going to accomplish what they were hoping it might work that way in the world favoritism and partiality but it's not going to work in the church let's read verse 5 again and see why listen my beloved brothers has not god chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him but you have dishonored the poor man God has chosen. If you're going to go against what God has chosen, you are going to lose. And when God builds his church, he has a very well-established pattern of choosing the very poor in order to do it. Now, of course, he's completely free to choose rich. And obviously, here we are, Hamilton County, he has done so. But like he says in 1 Corinthians 1 through Paul, 
Not many. Not many wise. Not many rich. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. So that no man may boast. God prefers to bring glory to his name by choosing those who are not rather than those who are. And if you're trying to do God's work in God's way, then it is those that the world considers to be nothing that will be your congregation. Continuing through verse 6. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James is pointing out that ingratiating yourself to rich people is just not an effective church-building strategy. If you succeed, then you have assimilated a bunch of unrepentant sinners into your church, and what you win people with is what you win people to. If you're trying to glorify the crucified Christ, then selling your soul for a more affluent congregation is going to be a bad plan. You'll end up with a self-satisfied, self-glorifying group of flattered rich people who care nothing about Jesus. So partiality is wrong because of the relationship between God and his people and also because of the relationships inside his church and finally because of our relationship with the law. This is how James ties this specific problem of partiality back into his big picture narrative of faith and works. These people say they have faith. James calls them brothers, says they hold the faith, and yet they're showing partiality in such a very toxic way. How can that be? These last six verses bring us back to talking about the law. But it almost seems like James is setting out to confuse us. On the one hand, we have verses 8 and 9. The law says, love your neighbor as yourself, and if you fail to do this, you are a transgressor. Murder, adultery, favoritism, all of them offenses, not just against the law, but against the law giver. And so you are convicted and condemned. This is the good, old-fashioned law of God which stands against us to condemn us and oppose us when we fail to meet the standard. But James has already talked about the law in quite different terms. Last week, chapter 1, we talked about the perfect law, the law of liberty, the implanted word which we receive, the word that can save us, the word of truth that God used to bring us forth into spiritual life, the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So which is it? Are we talking about the law which condemns us because we fail, or are we talking about the law that we are free to obey because we are in Christ? This is the point. This is the point of the text. This is the point of the sermon. If you checked out 20 minutes ago, now is the time to come back because this is the point, this final paragraph. We will be judged according to our works. Scripture makes that quite clear. But our works don't decide the verdict. Our works determine the standard by which we will be judged. You'll either die in your sins or you'll die in Christ. And when you stand before God's judgment seat, on what basis are you going to be judged? How will everybody know whose you are? God is not going to balance up the number of your good works against the number of your bad works. He's not going to total up the value of your good works against the value of your bad works. As though faith was some sort of high value good work that balances out all that bad stuff you did. Our works are not going to determine our verdict, decide our fate. Instead, they are going to determine the standard that God uses to judge us. Will you be judged according to the law or by the standard of mercy? Will the record show that you tried to keep the law on your own, achieve righteousness, attain holiness, self-justification? If so, then by the law you will be judged and convicted and condemned. Or... Will your life testify, your words, your actions, your attitudes, your thoughts, that you trusted Jesus to satisfy 
the law, and you followed hard after him. Not perfectly, but increasingly and faithfully. Always Jesus and the writers of Scripture are asking, are you merciful as you received mercy in Christ? Are you compassionate as God had compassion on you? Are you forgiving as you received forgiveness at the cross? Verse 12, so speak and so act. In this way, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Let your actions testify that you know what it is to receive grace. Showing favoritism is the exact opposite of what God did to us. And if we do not let mercy flow from us, then we are demonstrating that mercy has never flowed into us. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Showing love to the undeserving is how we demonstrate that we are God's children. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's your mercy, your love for the undeserving that will be the proof, the justification, James will go on to say, that the penalty for your sin, your judgment, was laid on Christ and that you are free. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this text. Thank you that it shows us hard and uncomfortable things about ourselves and the ways that we think and act towards our fellow man. And thank you that it shows us how holy you are. And thank you that you help us see that vast gap between what we are and what you are. And thank you that that helps us see how great the love of Jesus was when he went to the cross on our behalf. I pray that we will grow in our love for your son through this text and through this week. And I pray that you will be helping us to see as we go out into our schools, our neighborhoods, our workplaces this week, how it is that we are tempted to judge other people in ways that are wrong and how it is that we can seek to change our hearts and change our minds and change our actions. Please help us see how we can show mercy, show grace, and show your love to other people this week in the same way that you showed it to us in your son Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. If you want to talk to somebody, to me or one of the other elders or Jeff, about what it means to be free in Christ, then find us after the service. We'll have elders on either side of the room if you want to talk to us. Shall we stand? There is love that came for us.